This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale, Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Bernard Maluski of Altamont. He spent most of his life working as an environmental lobbyist and eight years writing a book about it. In his book, he recalls a ride to the White House. He writes, an aide is asking me to help tailor the public remarks of the President of the United States. Not bad for a blue-collar boy from upstate New York. He believes that because of the Internet, now is the best time of all to be a citizen lobbyist and encourages people to move forward with issues they care about. Uh, It was early 1990, and Dan Plumley and I had just settled into our seats. The train was gathering speed when Dan suddenly leaned down and pulled something out of his well-tooled cowboy boot. What do you got there, I asked. The report from the Commission on the Adirondack Park in the 21st century. How did you get that? I pried open a box with my penknife, and I hit one in my boot, he nonchalantly replied. Holy shit, I said. My mind flashed back to Dan asking the way to the men's room and then going off alone past the high stack of boxed reports. Dan and I were headed to New York City for my first meeting with the board of directors of my new employer, the Adirondack Council. I was the new guy taking charge of lobbying at the state capitol. On the way to the train station, Dan has suggested we stop by the offices of the Commission of the Adirondack Park, which uh, Governor Mario Cuomo had created the previous year. Dan introduced me to several commission staffers who were cleaning out their desks before returning to other lives. In a corner, stacked four high, were cardboard boxes full of the completed but not yet distributed report containing the panel's recommendations. The delay had extended to several weeks because the governor had asked the commissioner chairman, commission chairman, Peter Burley, to delay its public release. And now the rented commission offices uh, were uh, about to be uh, dispersed. The report was obviously going to be a topic of conversation at our board meeting. And while we were at the commission offices, we had a nice chat with the remaining staffers, but they said they would love to tell us what was in the report, but they could not. They hoped for a public unveiling in the next few days. Now, thanks to Dan, I held a copy in my hand. You got to read this before we get in, he said. (laughs) Yeah. So that gives you a flavor for the entire book. Um, It is filled with personal stories where Bernard himself is a character. It's more like reading Tom Jones than policy. So tell us, what, how do you, did you keep a journal? How is it that you have such specific detail over so many years on so many different people? Did you have this book in the back of your mind for decades? Uh, well, it took me eight years to complete, but uh, I had a lot of duplicate documents and uh, and also have a, a, a talent for remembering, uh, remembering conversations and incidents. And then I had colleagues who I interviewed and, and I said, what do you remember about this? And uh, so I could double check my uh, recollections. And uh, then I had a couple of uh, very good editors who uh, chased down any errors I had made in, uh, in facts or timelines. So what made you decide to spend eight years writing this book? 
Well, I had always wanted to write a book about the lobbying process because I think people don't really understand what actually happens. And I think it's important for the public to know what actually occurs and how lobbying works. And in my particular field, I worked for -for not-for-profit environmental organizations almost my entire career, with the exception of a five-year stint in the state legislature. And uh, um, they operate completely differently. So I thought uh, I had some good stories. Uh, Friends kept telling me that they loved the stories. And uh, and uh, so uh, the combination was enough to keep me motivated. And uh, um, I have had been running an organic farm for the last 15 years. And uh, in the winter, I didn't have much to do. <laughs> well, what intrigues me about the book is you're right, especially the last chapter, you, you do kind of a primer on lobbyists. And I think after having read the book and then the last chapter, it really gives a naive reader, and I really shouldn't be a naive reader because I've been a journalist for my whole life, but I was. Um, It gives the naive reader a sense of what that process is like. You say the stereotypical lobbyist, you know, flies on corporate jets, wines and dines people. And you say that could be true, but for your kind of not-for-profit environmental Adirondack Council, it was a very different sort of experience. And what, what really made the book powerful was layer upon layer upon layer for things that seemed to an outsider, even a journalist writing about these things, to be much simpler than they really were. So I'm hoping we can go back to that first passage you read us and unpack some of what happened in the very beginning. You're new to the job. You've been handed this report. And then you go on to unpack, really, I guess, okay, let's back up and do some really big background. (laughs) Um, In the 1970s, that's when I was writing for the Lake Placid News, and, you know, the Rockefeller Report had was not that far in the rearview mirror. The APA, the Adirondack Park Agency, was new and greatly reviled across the small towns in the Adirondacks. But as you're sitting on this train reading this report, it seems to be that the hope of this current commission under Mario Cuomo is going to have the same kind of wide effect. Is that right? The same kind oh, absolutely. of. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the uh, the Rockefeller Commission established, the, you know, the uh, the park agency, which is his, its greatest accomplishment and the land use classifications. Uh, but the Cuomo report attempted to get at any number of, of issues uh, in the park. And as I say in the book, I thought it was too ambitious in the sense that it addressed everything from junk cars to, uh, to uh, medical uh, systems in the Adirondacks. Uh, it proposed uh, massive new land uh, purchases by the state. And uh, uh, there wasn't uh, virtually anyone who lived in the park was going to be impacted in some way. Right. And your assessment on that train ride was, and I quote, looking at all these over 200 (laughs) recommendations, they're going to piss off a lot of people with this. And And they did. (laughs) Yeah. And your job was to try to get different 
groups of people to understand the importance of of this work. And one of the things the book does is it gives you an insider's view without being snotty. Like you talk about um, when the Flack report, Robert Flack um, issued what he called a minority report that came out well ahead of the actual commission report. And we hear that he was called Thermometer Bob <laughs> because his <laughs> neck would turn red and he, when he got upset, sort of, you know, filter up to his face. And we hear this phrase Lilliputian effect that um, the idea that you can have many, many small opponents, a basically good bill or proposal, but it ends up kiboshing it. So just kind of walk us through after the train ride scene that we've just heard, you know, what unfolded next? Well, um, I went to uh, the board meeting and uh, one of the uh, major players on the commission was actually on our board. And so he was kind of shocked that I knew what was in the report. And oddly, nobody <laughs> asked me. Uh, but I, I gave a warning to the board that uh, this was going to, as you uh, put it, uh, piss off a lot of people. And that it's not going to be as simple as as maybe the commission members thought about getting new legislation passed. Uh, and uh, the FLAC report, which came out early, uh, before the full report came out, because the governor had asked it for it to be delayed. It was an election year, and uh, uh, for his own reasons, they had it delayed. Um, the flock report just inflamed uh, people, and there was a, uh, all this resentment from the Rockefeller Commission report about being told what what they can or can't do with their own property. Uh, that was, you know, that had settled down, but it was just just below the surface. And I describe it as a, as a mind floating there waiting for the, 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 the new ship of the, in the form of the second commission to come by and uh, things just exploded. Uh, the communities and individuals organized against the report. And there was a, a great uproar in, in the community, including, uh, uh, including attacks on an, on an environmentalist and uh, even the council of council's rental rented offices in the park. Yeah, you describe that vividly, and you include in the book um, a handwritten note where your name is misspelled <laughs> from yeah. a woman who's um, the head of the Property Rights Council of America, and she writes, you've got no courage, no class, you and yours have no future. So throughout the book, you detail, very personal attacks like that aimed at you. Um, just how how do you as a person or how did you handle that? I mean, <laughs> there are just many, many instances in the book where, you know, they seem to be a lot of times women, <laughs> like hissing at you um, about your evilness. Uh, well, um I inherently I knew I wasn't evil, so that helped. Uh, but uh, you know, if you're a lobbyist, I was a lobbyist for a long time before I worked in the state legislature for five years, and then uh, and then I jumped back out for this Adirondack Council job. Uh, and uh, you learn to try and keep a poker face uh, because if you have spent a lot of years going in and talking to legislators or their staff, you hear some of the dumbest ideas 
or remarks <laughs> you can imagine. And you have to keep a straight face if you want to continue to engage with people. And so uh, uh, that uh, trying to be stoic is, was part of my uh, talent. And it seems another part of your talent was kind of reading what people wanted. There's this one passage, and I had marked it. Uh, I can't find it now, but um, you were trying to convince Governor Pataki of, um, you know, supporting state purchase of these big private estates that are being broken up in the Adirondacks so that they would stay public lands. And you said, this was my last and best card. (laughs) Um, You told the person that was going to ferry the information to Pataki that he could be called, what was it, the um, modern architect? I wish I, here it is. Uh, The modern architect of the Adirondack Park. Right. I told the commissioner Cahill, DEC commissioner Cahill at the time, because we had I had a private meeting with him and he expressed reservations about uh, buying the lands from Champion uh, Timber Industries. This is right after the purchase from Mary Lou Whitney of uh, of a portion of her estate. And uh, he was expressing some concern about the governor uh, over. Uh, you know, overstretching his uh, popular or straining his popularity by going into another big purchase. And uh, that was my last card. I said, well, you know, if, if you do that, uh, if the governor does that, then we'll call him, my organization will call him the uh, modern architect of the Adirondack Park. And the commissioner said, I like that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then at the ceremony announcing the purchase, uh, he introduced the governor as the modern architect of the Adirondack Park. And it's it's stuck. That's the opinion I think a lot of people have. You know, Pataki, he was the environmentalist. He's the one that, you know, it it's stuck. So part of your, you call it an art in the book, part of your art is reading what people how they envision themselves and kind of forwarding that. I mean, how, how do you develop that as a skill? Um, well, it takes a lot of experience. It takes a lot of making mistakes um, and then uh, generally uh, learning to listen um, and what people are saying. I had one little trick, uh, which I'll reveal. And I do reveal in the book. And that is that we had student interns, uh, Mm -hmm. during the legislative session. And in addition to helping me with my terrible memory of names, they would often tell me who I was meeting with before, while we were outside the door. Uh, the other thing that they were charged with when they were allowed to come into the meetings, which was a big deal for student interns. Uh, and, but their job was to watch the room. So while I kept eye contact with the senator, for example, uh, the intern will watch the aides from the senator. And if the senator said something and they looked at each other and rolled their eyes, uh, I would get a report back from the intern that, uh, you know, something was amiss. Um, And so that was very helpful just to gather information from people's uh, reactions and body language. Just to kind of read the room. Case the situation. Well, Mm -hmm. you just mentioned the Mary Lou Whitney thing, and we should walk through that, I think, because it's a fascinating story about how you did your job, but also 
there's such familiarity with her name in this area because there's so much or was so much media coverage of her galas and her, you know, various. Um, but just kind of walk us through uh, how that unfolded. Um, she was presumably interested soon after marrying uh someone who was into real estate development to to sell her vast estate at Long Lake and just kind of walk us through that as a story because I think it's fascinating. Well, we uh, uh, when it became known that she wanted to sell a good portion of the property, including the Whitney uh, Industries headquarters, uh, which is timber in the in the timber industry, um, we uh, we actually were able to meet with them and they showed us their grand plans for uh, housing development, et cetera. And just couldn't, uh, we came away with convinced that this was all a way of uh, creating a, a value uh, from uh, in the open space that she could then uh, use to barter with the state for an acquisition by the state. And so they they never really said uh, well occasionally she she did but uh, but always for the media but privately uh, both she and her husband were, uh, uh, always said that they would be interested in selling with the state but only for an extremely high price and um, local government people were supporting her because they had visions of uh, uh, luminaries and celebrities taking these cabins and then populating Long Lake, New York, and and somehow benefiting the uh, the taxes for the for the town as well. But uh, well, through some diligent research uh, with our group and another joining us. Um, we discovered that the way the plots were laid out, they would take advantage of the existing uh, huge tax break for uh, that was already on the property. And so they, the property tax benefit to the town and the county was much, much less than people had anticipated. And we were able to uh, literally chart um, because the state of New York pays full taxes on any land it owns inside the Adirondack Park, unlike most other places. Uh, so we were able to contrast uh, the 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 uh, uh, tax value to our benefit to the town and county from the development, which would take over 15 years, according to their own statement, versus the immediate uh, uh, payment of taxes by the state if it acquired it. And that really changed the the dynamic uh, with the local governments and local local people, I believe. Yeah. And it 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 feeds into one of the pieces of advice you have in your last chapter on lobbyists. You write about um, the, quote, cherished technique of the advocacy world, and that is to research an issue that needs reform, publish a report with a catchy title, <laughs> release to the media, then with the media reports in hand, visit the politicians, bureaucrats to get the change. But here you did the research on what was actually going to happen with the taxes, and it turned right. out the state land was going to be better, and that quieted the local officials, and you were able to take the next step. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, you know, the, I, they didn't anticipate us doing that. Um, it was just uh, diligent research that we found that. So we sort of came in sideways on the issue and uh, and and took away a, a substantial portion of their support in the local community for the development. Well, of course, as a journalist, I was very interested <laughs> all the way through the book, the 
I don't know that I feel like the press really was admirable in your book a lot of times. <laughs> I mean, it was like journalists were used to further what you were doing. And I wonder, were there ever times where journalists had discovered things you didn't know or had like shed light in a way that was not just where you wanted to shine it? Uh, well, um, a lot of our... Um our attention to the press was at, at the Capitol. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the Capitol Press Corps. And you have to imagine they have dozens and dozens of, of uh, legislators and staff and lobbyists pitching them constantly uh, on stories. And so you had to present them a compelling story um, and, you had to, and you had to be uh, persistent. Uh, they loved a scoop. Uh, and uh, and to beat out the other Capitol reporters. Uh, and so um, uh, it was extremely uh, valuable that they were so busy uh, because, uh, unfortunately, they didn't really do much of their own investigation. They they maybe checked out the facts alleged in our, in our press release or, or in the story where we were pitching them, but they couldn't do much beyond that because of the shortage of time. Yeah. That's that's disheartening, especially now that there's so many fewer resources with the media and it makes yeah. you worry about the future. The one time I felt squeamish reading your book and you did, too. I mean, you were very honest about it was where there was a rumor about you being considered to be the EPA, head of the EPA, and you kind of played along with this for a while, you know, when reporters would call giving them evasive answers. And then you recalled, I think it was from your childhood, this advice, don't piss in the wind. And it kind That's of right. backed off that. But yeah. um, I grew up in Half Moon, New York, and that was one of many common <laughs> sayings. Yeah. So. Well, uh, let's talk about that a little. One of my favorite passages, and again, I'm flipping madly through my notes to find it. It's um, towards the end of the book, you're working um, towards this legislation um, for clean, clean air. And you describe yourself as in the Lincoln Continental heading for the White House. And um, you get a call from one of this is George W. Bush, one of his aides. And oh, gosh, I just want to. Oh, here it is. Um, and you, this is from your book. Um, an aide is asking me to help tailor the public remarks of the President of the United States. Not bad for a blue-collar boy from upstate New York. And you just have this little moment of reflection before you answer the question and go to the White House ceremony. But just tell us a little about, about that sentence, about that perspective. Did, did you feel... Just, I'll just leave the question there. <laughs> okay. Uh, the the aide uh, ultimately ended up being his uh, uh, the director of communications for for George Bush, um, and uh, the uh, uh, I was just I could not believe that I was traveling with our executive director for him, and I had actually promised him and was able to deliver. Uh, that he would meet with the president of the United States about our most important issue. 
And, uh, and the, it, I was momentarily overwhelmed and, uh, also naive because the, the aide said, uh, you know, I'm, uh, uh, can POTUS say this? And I said, what's a POTUS? <laughs> what's a POTUS? <laughs> The aide goes, you know, President of the United States. (laughs) Yeah, you have a lot of self-deprecating humor throughout the throughout the book. So, yeah. Well, well deserved. (laughs) (laughs) But in the end, what happened is the Clean Air Act just deadlocked. But you end that section. Bush had kept his promise because the clean air interstate rule after the act was dead was then instituted that was to prevent the acid rain that was so harmful to the Adirondack Park. Right, right. Bush had come to the Adirondacks uh, on a snowy spring day and on Earth Day, and uh, I was happy to help orchestrate that. Uh, And then I didn't orchestrate this... (laughs) snowfall uh which pushed it from outdoors into uh into the white face the ski area uh, uh, uh cafeteria uh and uh, uh he his remarks were that uh you know he would pro- he promised that he would uh put an end to acid rain in the adirondacks and uh when things started to stall out on the senate side um in in congress uh, and they couldn't get a bill out of the of the major environmental committee. Um, his uh, um, uh, a fellow named Connaughton, who uh, ran the think tank for them, uh, called us into his office. We had never met with him. We always met with the aides. And he said that the president had decided that uh, if we couldn't get the bill through, that we would uh, we would have EPA pass regulations. And they did. And. Uh, uh, even as those regulations were fought tooth and nail by some parties all the way to the Supreme Court, uh, more than once, uh, the trend or the outcome seemed inevitable to many, many of uh, the power uh, companies that were using coal and polluting, creating the acid, uh, the pollutants that create acid rain in the Adirondacks. And so there was a significant shutdown of older boilers or uh, them moving to natural gas, et cetera. And so there was a sudden drop in the pollutants and I'm very happy that the lakes are coming back. We're, we're seeing trout in lakes that, that we saw new trout for many, many years. That must feel very satisfying. But do you worry now with the current Supreme Court, especially their ruling this year, that you know, some of this is going to backslide with the EPA not having its regulatory clout? Well, uh, it's a question of uh, making further progress. Um, you know, uh, I mean, the first one to say that the acid rain problem is not totally resolved in the Adirondacks. Uh, every spring, there's called a, you know, the spring acidification of these streams get that get over uh, carry uh, pollutants and uh, sort of spring shock is what the term is. But uh, and that hasn't been eliminated. But uh, um, so uh, it was mostly directed at carbon dioxide. You know, if we if we cut back on carbon di- dioxide emissions, obviously sulfur and nitrogen uh, emissions will also be reduced. So that would help the Adirondacks for sure, um, not only just on climate. Um, but the thing that it gives me hope, uh, and, and this is it, it's still going to be a long, drawn out process, is that in that uh, 
that comprehensive bill uh, that passed um, uh, with uh, only 50 votes um, buried in that was a statement that Congress uh, recognizes carbon dioxide as a pollutant. And the Supreme Court decision was basically that Congress had not given the EPA the authority to regulate carbon. Now it hasn't. So you mean in the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a, a section that recognizes the carbon dioxide as a pollutant. That's and correct. therefore, yeah. the EPA will be kind of reinstated in its ability through this legislation to yeah. regulate. Well, that's that's uh, a relief yeah. because yeah. It, I, it would still be a glacial process. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> you know, it'll be challenging the courts again and that kind of stuff. But at least they, had, you know, they did address the fundamental problem that the Supreme Court identified. Good. That's my hope that there would be a back and forth when there's a court decision to have the legislature come back with the will of the people so that things can move it forward. Me that they, there was not a word spoken of it that's, that I could tell in the press. Yeah. Well, good. So, good. Yeah. So, um, gosh, there's so many things I wanted to get to. We're running out of time. There's just a lot of good stories in this book. And one of the ones I want you to tell is the okay. men in the bowler hats. Wow. It's because I love the uh, Sable. I, I, I just could you tell us that story? Sure. Um, uh, just a quick background. Um, uh, 1984, and then again later, the uh, legislature created conservation easements. Uh, and for example, uh, 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 Indian Ladder Farms has a has an easement on their property, so to ensure that the property won't, won't be developed, it'll always remain a, remain a farm. And that that was a very uh, cost effective way to protect land in the Adirondacks. Uh, and that legislation got grew very popular, but there were already easements granted under uh, common law for the, the derived from the from the Britons, Brit. British, rather, um, that some uh, entities had given easements to the state. And one of them was the Sable Club uh, in the Adirondacks near Keene. Uh, and they, at one point in time, they had owned uh, a vast majority of the high peaks, actually, and they sold them to the state and then granted an easement to get uh, hiking trails to there. So they were feeling that they didn't get the tax break that other p parties were getting, and they wanted the law change to uh, to include the common law e easements that preceded the law to uh, to get a tax break. So they contacted me, and they said, "Well, you know, we don't we have good contacts in the Senate through then Senator Stafford, but we don't have any good contacts in the assemblies. There's someone we can." talk to. So I said, sure. And I identified a, uh, an aide in the Ways and Means Committee that I knew. Uh, and ultimately, the, the Ways and Means Committee controls all expenditures in the, in the assembly. Uh, when you work on the inside, it's a place where good bills go to die. Uh, but uh, uh, so they said uh, he, they set up a meeting and he went in and I had no idea that the two of them were going to come in uh, uh, carrying umbrellas because it was raining. Uh, black umbrellas, black pinstripe suits with bowler hats. And they came in. So I got a call from the aide and he called Annette and said, was that a joke? <laughs> so what are you talking about? And he apparently thought I, was, I played some elaborate joke on him because they sent these people in, in uh, pinstripe suits and bowlers to ask him for a tax break. Uh, and he thought it was cartoonish. Uh, yeah, eventually but I was able to what? 
resolve the issue. Yeah, you sorted it all out, and I'm so glad you did because the Sable Club controls access to several of the high peaks, and you, through your negotiations, were able to not just get the club the tax break that they wanted, but keep that access open to people. And yes, it I turned mean, out that, that same aide was very familiar and had hiked through the easements uh, from the Alsable Club. But uh, yeah, well, it's just what that uh, story in your book captures for me is the idea of two disparate worlds just smashing together. I mean, the Sable Club people think it's perfectly normal to wear polar hats, whereas, you know, the guy at Ways and Means thinks it's a joke. And right. what the bridge that you found was telling him about this access, and he had an experience of it himself. And that made the connection. So you're like always working to bring this kind of human connection for people that might not really get each other. And I just think that that chapter just captures that so, so beautifully because all the way through the book, you're in the book as a character. I mean, you've got cluster flies falling on you when you're living in an old farmhouse or you're off rafting with your sons in Colorado and you meet two young women taking a cross-country trip. They're from the Northeast, but they don't really know about what the Adirondack Park is. And, you know, you're taking whatever happens to you personally and it's part of the story, which it just it makes for marvelous reading. It's really thank you. Um, so I just we're just running out of time, but I you should tell us briefly about how people can get the book and where they can hear you soon talking about the book. Sure. Uh, well, it's most outlets. Uh, as SUNY as SUNY Press as the publisher, um, and you can buy it through them. You can go to my website actually and buy the book. Uh, it's uh, the title of the book, Inside the Green Lobby dot com. Um, and uh, 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 bookstores such as the uh, uh, Bookhouse and Stuyvesant carry the book. Um, and um, I will be speaking at the Voorheesville Library on Monday, the 13th. And then in October, I'll be at the Gilden uh, Public Library giving a talk and signing books as well. And our library columnist for Gilderland, Luann Nicholson, will be filling people in when it gets closer to the time so they know. But something I'd like to end with is at the very end of your book, you write, now is the best time to be a citizen lobbyist. And that's what our paper is all about, trying to empower our readers to make a difference. And if you could just uh, talk through some of the reasons you think now is such a really good time to be a citizen lobbyist. Well, I, th- I think it has everything to do with the Internet. Uh, you, can, you can do incredible amounts of research, not only on uh, policy issues, what other states have done, you can get copies of legislation on, on that have been passed or being considered in other states that you can copy or emulate. Um, you can, uh, frankly, research the people you're trying to influence, to find out what their interests are, uh, what their background has been. Uh, you know, if the senator was it was the senator a carpenter before he became a senator, was he a, did he raise orchids 
uh, and that kind of thing, uh, or her. And, um, and also the ability to organize. You can create uh, a, a group of common uh, of people of common interest and keep them informed and uh, be able to instantly get them to write a letter when it was needed or come to a meeting uh, or, uh, or address other other people. I mean, one of the one of the key things and this is not in the book, but uh, one of the key things when I was working a very long time ago on the returnable container legislation, the bottle bill uh, Warren Anderson was the Senate leader at the time, and we found out that his wife was a member of the Binghamton Garden Club. And uh, we we got the uh, the uh, president of the of the Garden Club in Binghamton, who was sympathetic to the, the bottle bill, to invite uh, a, uh, a colleague of ours from the League of Conservation Voters, uh, or, or League of Women Voters, excuse me, uh, to go and do a presentation there. And so what we relied on was, uh, frankly, pillow talk. <laughs> you have the pillow talk in your book when you're talking about uh, how to be a lobbyist. You said, you know, don't negate the the uh, influence of pillow talk. Oh, gosh. So, yeah. So, uh there are lots of ways to uh, to influence individuals, but uh, it requires a lot of patience and, and research. So what are you doing going forward? Do you have another book in you or is this a one time endeavor? You know, I kind of it took me a long time, but I enjoyed uh, writing the stories. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm doing I'm working on another book and it's about my period of time as a hobby farmer. Uh, here in Altamont. Oh, wow. I, I ran a CSA for a number of years and uh, um, had a series of wonderful experiences on the farm with wildlife and other things that uh, um, most of which are humorous. Uh, so, um, you know, which seems to follow me around. Uh, so, uh, I'm working on that. And uh, uh, surprisingly, the title will be Hobby Farm. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it rhymes with lobby. There you go. <laughs> so do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Yes, uh, I think that the the last uh, chapter is the most important for people who uh, to encourage them to participate uh, in government and participate in, in moving issues that that they care about. And, and the, the most important thing is to. Uh, the guiding light here is the people you want to influence. You have to figure out why they should uh, benefit or we should agree with your your position. Uh, find out what motivates them. Sometimes it's just media coverage. Sometimes it's uh, you know they have a family member who has a, you know a similar disability. Um, whatever it is, uh, know your audience and find a way that your goal is their goal. And that's that's the ultimate uh, art of lobbying. Oh, I like that. I'm going to you should have the last word, but I'm just adding one more thing because another point you make again and again in your book is compromise. The idea yeah. that you've got to be able you don't want to be left with nothing if you can't get exactly what you want to compromise. 
Yeah, well, I was I was fortunate enough to be uh, an environmental lobbyist for a very long time, so I could see the process uh, playing out. And I was I had a base where we, you know, if we didn't get something this year, we get it next year. Um, you know, the example, the conservation easements. I mean, the people who had common law easements uh, were intentionally left out. Uh, when we did that, because the issue was so complex about property rights, et cetera, that um, the eyes of lawmakers were rolling back in their heads when we were talking to them about it. And so we tried to simplify the bill and then uh, with a promise to go back and, and uh, amend it. And it never happened. So that's how I got thrown into it. I, I had worked on the original conservation easements uh, 10 years prior. Uh, and it was uh, uh, like a bad penny <laughs> came back. But you did the right thing when it came back. And also, I know I keep going. This is, <laughs> but I just I like your page of I don't know personal reflection. The book opens with this book is dedicated to Molly, our sons Matt and Dan, and to their children and their children's children. May they all enjoy the wild places that have been preserved for them. And then there's this wonderful picture in gray tones with a little girl silhouetted, a stick in the lake and apparently taken by your son of his child. Yes. Is that right? That's, that's, my, that's my grandchild answer. Yeah. <laughs> so just do you have any thoughts on your sense of personal connection to your work? It, it seems like as you read... All these stories, um, at the heart of it, you you have a like a personal connection. Oh, uh, you know, I I absolutely the two things. One, I absolutely love the Adirondacks. I you know, it's I, I can be um, you know vacationing there and just and just just enjoy this enjoy the surroundings. Um, so that's that's very important to me, but. The other the other thing is that I've just been I was very unfortunate to have an opportunity to have an outsized influence for one individual. I mean, I was just put in a position that, uh, you know, I often describe myself as a political scientist with a law degree. And uh, as a political scientist, to be able to be at the front lines of uh, influencing change over a long period of time, especially on things that are important to all of us, like the environment, I, I just couldn't possibly imagine a better career outcome for me. Well, I think we should also all be grateful for what you pursued. And like you have one time in there, uh, some of the staff members of the Adirondack Council are in New York City, and there's a cab driver with a foreign accent who's never been to the Adirondacks, but likes knowing that there's this huge amount of wilderness in his state that belongs to the people. It's just kind of like having this idea, even for the people that aren't hiking there, biking there, <laughs> canoeing there, just having this place. So, Well, that, uh, that incident was an inspiration for the staff for a very long time. Uh, the cab driver just said, I, I can just go there for free and camp. And I said, yes. And he said, I love it. I miss maybe someday I'll get there. Well, great. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you.